Amen, amen. Well, welcome to Two Cities Church, whether you're watching online or in the lobby or in here. Happy Reformation Day, or for all you pagans out there, happy Halloween, okay? I know why you're at the morning service this morning and it's so packed in here. Welcome. Uh, guys, that video is all about what does it mean for us when we say that's our bullseye, that's our end zone, that's our goal. It's transformed and changed lives. I met Alex Sella before she was Alex Shefferly. I met her before she was a believer. I met her before she was baptized. I met her before she was married. And this is what God does. He makes people from spiritually, he takes people from spiritually lost to spiritually leading. From being a seeker and a skeptic to saved and sent, and we are really excited. Uh, by the way, when you came here today, if you weren't here last week, we gave you one of these at the door. This is a part of our forward series, and I want to tell you guys about that just for a little bit. So what we're doing as a church, we love clarity. I'm, I'm going to give you clarity this morning. What are we doing? Uh, as a church, we're moving forward. What does that mean? Well, here's the simplest way I could say it. We're going deeper into discipleship. We're going wider in our witnessing. And we're growing stronger in our structures. And somehow, and it really is a humbling, amazing reality, God has opened up 10 acres in downtown, in Winston-Salem, in 2021. So we're going forward as a, as a church. We're going to build a future home and hub. I'm not going to talk about that much more. Because it's in the book. You can read about it. We shot a video. It's exciting. Uh, but I'm much more concerned. We're much more concerned. I hope you're much more concerned about going forward personally. So I came here this morning to challenge you to go forward personally, to take God at his word and to take your next step. For some of you, it's going to be financially. For some of you, it's, it's going to be with your family. For some of you, it's going to be with your finances. In fact, you know, we do four services here, you know, Saturday and then three on Sunday. And it took four services for me to create a compliment last week, but I got one compliment last week, okay? After, after the five o'clock service, I was talking to a, a guy in our church, and he's a great guy, and he's a member. And he's a community group leader. I said, how did it go, right? Because we launched this and there was a video and there was a book and there was, a, you know, it's a whole series. It's an initiative. He said, I loved it because I was leaving not thinking about the building. I was leaving not thinking about the initiative. I was leaving thinking, what does it look like for me and for my family to go forward personally? And he's a community group leader. So he goes, it's real easy. All I'm going to do this week is, is lead my group in a conversation about where do each of us need to go forward personally? So th that's what the book's about, guys. Uh, also, we gave you a card. Let me just tell you this. It's about uh, two goals that we have for this initiative. One is 100% participation from everyone who calls Two Cities Church home. And there was this guy on our staff team. He's still on our staff team. But he raised his hand. Uh, our staff meeting this last week. And he said, Kyle, how will we know if we were at 100% participation? I mean, there's lots of people watching online. There's lots of people who, who, who do we, how would we know? Do you call Two Cities Church home? You know, how, how do you know? I said, we won't know, but every individual person will know. You'll know. You'll know. Is two cities my home? Am I going to be part of investing in this kingdom? Well, our goal is 100% participation. Second goal is $2 million in one-time gifts above and beyond normal tithes and offerings by the end of 2021. Now, I said this last week, $2 million sounds like a lot of money, and it is. And, and I told a story last week about 2500 and 25000 and 250000 and these three different gifts that came in. And, and, you know, I have some notes back here, but I don't have a lot of notes when I'm up here speaking, and, and I just felt compelled, and then I ended up saying in all the services, but I said, hey, some of you, your, your kids could give $2.50. I said, some of you, you're, a single mom could give $250. Well, I get home, I open up my email, and, uh, and there's a lady, and she emails me, and she says, I'm a single mom. I was at your church this weekend, newly single mom, dealing with custody stuff, dealing with child support, not sure of everything. I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, I need to give $250 to this initiative and trust God with our finances. I thought, wow, God's working. Had another couple, by the way, I have dozens and dozens of stories to share. I can only share two or three every week, and they still take takes up a little bit of time, right? Um, but we had this other couple, they email me. They're a young couple in our church. They say, Pastor Kyle, hey, when, when you launch this, because we told our church about this back in April, like a little bit. Hey, guys, we got this land. We're not sure all that's going to happen, but we're going to go forward with it. Uh, we're going to do an initiative. And she said, when you told us about it in April, we said we're going to do 7,000. That's what me and my husband said. They said, then over the summer, we just we got comfortable at 7,000. So we said, over the summer, we're going to do 10,000. They said, then you did the members meeting, and you cast the vision, and you showed the pictures, and we went home, and we said 13,000. She said, and that's all we're going to do. <laughs> <laughs> she said, because we've been sitting at 13,000 for six weeks, and I'm getting a little scared, and it's going to be sacrificial, and we're really excited. And then she said this. She said, here's the weird thing. Because of my husband's job, there's a really good chance that by the time this building gets built, we won't ever be here anymore. We're going to move. So this is, even though we're a young couple, this is a legacy gift. 
Because this is a gift to a city and to a church that most likely by the time it's completed, we won't even be a part of. So that happened. And then, and then last weekend, before I even do the 5 o'clock service, because we have you know, services all weekend here, after the, after the 11 o'clock service, we get an email that somebody gave stock. You can give stock to this initiative. Something to pray about, okay? <laughs> uh, and somebody gave $75,000 in stock. I said, wow, you know? And it didn't come with an email. It didn't come with an explanation. I thought, what's going on? So I called the husband. Well, you wouldn't believe what God's done in our life through this church. In fact, you got to call my wife. So I call her. What's God doing in your heart to give a gift like that? She says, well, same thing. God's done so much in our lives. God's done so much in our marriage. And in, in new ways, I'm seeing my husband step up as a spiritual leader in the family. I thought, amen. That's what this is all about. This is all about us taking our next step forward in our finances, or sorry, in our faith, and it affecting our finances. Um, finally, real quickly, I want to just tell you, what are we doing with all of the money that we're going to be raising? So uh, we, we are going to tithe off of whatever comes in. Two million, three million, four million, five million, whatever might come in. Uh, whatever comes in, um, we're going to tithe off of it to local, national, global partners. So we're going to take 10% of it, and then we're going to divide that 10% up and give some locally, nationally, globally. Locally, we're going to do two things. We're going to support pregnancy care centers in our city, particularly two of them, uh, who, who basically empower women you know, to deal uh, courageously with their unplanned pregnancies, and as well as they rescue the preborn and the unborn. So we're going to give generously to that. And then there's an, an organization called TCMI. It stands for Triad Multiplication or TC, Triad Church Multiplication Initiative. They partner with churches in uh, the triad to plant more churches, more gospel-centered churches in the triad. And uh, we're not territorial at all, and we actually believe that every city needs more churches, more gospel-preaching churches, and we believe that it takes all types of churches to reach all types of people. Uh, so when you give, this end-of-the-year gift, uh, part of it's going to help our church go forward, and then part of it's going to help pregnancy care centers and other local churches in our city go forward. Let's pray, and then we're going to dive into Acts chapter 2. Lord, it's a, I just love it. I, it's an exciting time to, to be alive. It's an exciting time to be a part of this local church. I thank you for all the stories. Those are just three of the stories, Lord, that, that I know about. Um, you're, you're doing unique things in people's minds and their hearts. Lord, I just want to pray to help us each take our next step forward. Lord, even this morning that you would just do something unique. Maybe it's somebody who's here for the first time. Maybe it's a sin pattern that needs broken. Maybe it's a commitment that needs made. Maybe it's a step forward in being baptized. Um, whatever it is, Lord, would you show up in power like you did in Acts chapter 2? Would you fill this church with the Holy Spirit? Would you send us out on mission? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can type 2, turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we're going to cover the whole chapter today. Uh, really quickly, we're going to do a flyover of the chapter. There's just so much. It's 47 verses. Let's just dive right in. It says this, when the day of Pentecost, what is that? That's 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. And it's 10 days after the ascension. And so here's what it says. Um, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So when they say they were, they were back in Jerusalem, they were all together. Was it just the 12? No, it was the 120. So there were 120 uh, disciples there. And uh, they're waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, Acts chapter 2, if you want to write this down, this is the church's birthday. That's what Acts chapter 2 is. So every local church has a birthday. If you've not been coming around for long, you may not know this. In September, we just celebrated our fifth birthday. We say anniversary, but it's the same thing. We celebrated our fifth birthday. Now, I don't know how you think about birthdays. Some of you, you don't care about birthdays. Some of you don't celebrate birthdays. Some of you don't make a big deal about birthdays. Others of you are biblical like me, Okay. You make a big deal about birthdays. My 30th birthday was very close to a national holiday, okay? <laughs> and I was recently, I'm 37, I was talking to my wife recently, and she said, you know, is your 40th birthday going to be a, do you want like a big birthday party for your 40th birthday? I was like, yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah like we can budget for it, we'll figure it out. Like, let's, like, and she said, she said, this is a lot of pressure. I said, babe, you've got three, and a, three years you got three years to plan this. So it's, it's, this is a massive birthday. In fact, what's going to happen in Acts chapter 2 is um, basically, so some of you take notes. Uh, here's what happens. Uh, in verses 1 through 13, the Holy Spirit falls on and fills the believers. That's the first 13 verses. So the Holy Spirit falls. And then in verses 14 through 41, it's my favorite part of the, of the whole uh, chapter 2 because it's all about preaching. 
And Peter gets up there and he preaches the most seeker, insensitive sermon you've ever heard. It's basically like, listen, you guys killed Jesus, repent, get baptized, change your life, join the church. And 3,000 people get converted. Right? I mean, you want to talk about church growth. They immediately have to go to multiple services. Okay, this church says they go from 120 to 3,000. They're out of auditorium space. They're out of kid space. They don't have anywhere to park their camels. I mean, guys, this is a big deal. The church is growing. And then in verses 42 to 47, so this is how it works. The spirit falls and fills, and then the word is preached, and then the church is formed. And that's what always happens. Uh, we are going to, as we get into this building, it's a home and hub, because from that building, we are going to plant so many churches locally, nationally, globally, and we're always looking for three things. Number one, where is the spirit working? Where is God uniquely working on a person's heart? I've got a heart for Greenville. I've got, you know, I've got a heart for Columbia, South Carolina. I've got a heart for Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Okay, the Holy Spirit's working. The second question, can he preach? That's always the question. Not, is he a nice guy? Not, does he like to do counseling? Not, is he an organizational leader? Not, does he have his master's of divinity? Can he preach? Because what happens is when the Spirit comes and then the word is preached, and it's the word preached, the church comes into being through a sermon. And then the third thing is, what is this church going to be like? And in verses 42 to 47, here's what we see, fellowship. Now, when, you see, when I say fellowship, don't think fellowship hall, right? That's all we think. We think of fellowship halls where we all ate potlucks. I mean, and then we move the tables to try to play basketball. I mean, that, that's, what, that's what we think about when we think about fellowship halls. Or some of you, right, you think of J.R.R. Tolkien and the fellowship of the ring, right? Some of you in the medical community, you think, okay, I got only a couple more years after my residency and I'll be in my fellowship. We're not talking about any of that. That's not what fellowship is. Here's what fellowship is. It's life together on mission. And what, what the Spirit and what the Word do is they create this reality that's fellowship. Now, fellowship can't happen alone. You can't have it alone. Most Americans, well, not most Americans, but many Americans are isolated. They're lonely. You can't do fellowship online. It's impossible. Online, on, or online church is an oxymoron. It can't exist. It doesn't exist. It's not a thing. Uh, you can't, we'll get to verses 42 to 47. Go ahead and try to do that online. Having an online church is like having an online marriage. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> it's not biblical. It's not even marriage. You can't even do all the things that you should do in marriage. You can't do it online. Same thing with the church. And you can't do it with non-Christians. So fellowship is unique. Now, why do we need fellowship? Because life is hard. That's the reason. Biblically. It's not good for man to be alone. Life is very, very hard. Sin is hard. Suffering's hard. And what you want to do is you want to tie yourself into meaningful relationships where you can one another, one another. That's what fellowship is. I want another, one another. All of the one another's of scripture, sharing each other's burdens and forgiving each other and praying for one another. All of the one another's, there's 61 of them in the New Testament. Who am I going to one another with? What the church does is one another, one another. And so here's, what, here's, the, here's the most comprehensive uh, definition of fellowship. I gave you a short one. It's Life Together on Mission. The longer one will be, it's a social and a spiritual reality that's created by the Spirit and the Scriptures. So it's a social. So what, what you're going to see is the church is highly relational. Some of you need to be more relational. We love you, but you need to be way more relational. And by the way, if you didn't grow up in a relational home, if you don't know how to be relational, it's very hard to learn, but you've got to get around people. You've got to be relational. This isn't introvert, extrovert. This is learning to be relational. You are relational by nature because you're made in God's image. God is a relational God. God has always lived in community. God will always live in community. And when God saves you, he enfolds you and he engrafts you into a local church. And so we're going to look at this. Fellowship is not a, a nicety. It is a necessity. And so with our time left, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through and we're going to see the spirit fall. We're going to see the word preached and we're going to see the church formed. Uh, look at me at verse two. Verse two says this. Um, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So first there's an audible experience, then there's a visible experience. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them resting on each one of them. So then the, you know, the, there's a tongue of fire over each person, which tells you that every person gets the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, certain people at certain times for certain events or certain tasks got the Spirit. In the New Testament, every believer gets the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them 
utterance. So this is what's called Pentecost. Christians have discussed and debated uh, and dialogued about what, what all does Pentecost mean? Here's what we know. It was a unique moment in the life of the church. It was a spiritual high. Many consider it the, well, actually it is considered the first revival in the church. It's, all, it's the church's birthday. It's also the first revival. Let me just tell you this. You need Pentecost in your life. I'm speaking metaphorically here. You need highs. You need mountaintops. You need moments. You need milestones. You need memories. I promise you. I was with some pastors recently. They're, this church is exploding, and they just bought a camp. And I, and I was with them. I said, why did you guys buy a camp? It's like, that's like the Baptist dream of 1980. <laughs> I mean, I know how this, that's an old playbook. Build your Sunday school wing, right? Get your Bible college, buy your camp. That's what you used to do. I said, what are you guys doing? That's an old playbook. They said, it's not an old playbook. They said, the problem with Christians is they stop going to camp. Right? They said, he said, it's, and I mean that in more ways than just literally going to camp. They, they stop. Once you get out of high school, once you get out of middle school, you stop having spiritual experiences. You stop having spiritual moments. You stop having spiritual milestones. I think it's one of the reasons that everybody's so obsessed with travel. Right? It's a, it's a generational thing. My parents, I did not grow up with parents, and they had the means to do it. They, we got to go to Europe. We got to backpack through this. We got to go see this. Not again, it's not wrong to do that. Why is it? I think part of it is like, I have no other way to make memories. I have no other mountaintops. I need to just go spend a lot of money and take selfies. That's what, that's what I have to do to make memories and have milestones. And actually, you, you go, why are we building a 1,250-seat worship center in downtown it's so that weekly together we can have milestones. It's so that weekly together we can have moments. That's what we try to create here on the weekends. It's, life's hard, right? It's like, you know, many of you don't like your jobs. You've got difficult marriage. You've got secret sin you're struggling with. You're trying to leverage your two or three vacation, weeks of vacation the best way you know how. Your kids are driving you crazy. And you need a place to come where you can be invested in. You need a place to come where you can sing. You need a place to come where you can say, I'm recommitting. And that's what, that's, and we're going to do retreats. We're going to do other things. We're going to do all that kind of stuff. These are mountaintops and these are milestones. And so look what happens in verse 5. It says this, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So they were all Jews, but they were from all these different places. So the key here is, and you would know this if you're reading this you know, in the first century, they would have spoken many different languages. Um, it says this, and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each of them was hearing each, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Verse seven, and they were amazed and they were astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Now Galileans, they were uneducated. They were considered to be from the backwoods. They were considered to be the Hicks and the rednecks. Think West Virginia, okay? <laughs> this is... <laughs> This is, I mean, th these are people, and this is actually important to understand this, because here's what they were saying. Um, there might be people who can speak multiple languages, because what was happening is these people were hearing the gospel preached in their language by people that they know couldn't speak their language. It'd be like if we had like 15, you know, Chinese students coming from Wake Forest, and they sat here, and while I'm speaking in English, you guys are hearing me in English, and they're hearing me in Mandarin, Mandarin, and they're looking at me going, there ain't no way he knows how to speak Mandarin. That's the miracle. Speaking in tongues in the book of Acts, in, in this chapter, is speaking in other human languages. And this is a very big missional moment. Here's why this is important, because one of the great barriers in mission is language. So, so we just sent a couple, we'll tell you more about this in a couple weeks, but we just sent a couple to Central Asia. I mean, I'm not even allowed to tell you where in Central Asia, because it's such a dangerous place. Anyway, so th they just went there, they got these two little babies that they're taking with them, and and we had them, like, we like sat like at their feet as they talked to us, because we just love our missionaries. They came and talked to our staff. And we said, guys, how can we pray for you? And they said, we'll pray for our marriage and you know, pray for our kids and all this. And they said, just pray because for like the first two years, all we do is learn language. It's a massive, it's a massive barrier is we have to learn this language so we can communicate it, right? Every time you plan a church, you have to decide what is the language we're gonna speak, right? So up here, I'm casual and I'm conversational, but I'm convictional, right? I, there's nothing formal about what I do up here. I mean, I don't, you don't come in here today and I go, dearly beloved, Brothers and sisters, as we gather today on the Lord's Day, it's like goofy, right? It's like, that's not how people talk. That's why we don't read the KJV. I'm not, if you like the KJV, okay. Uh, 
But we don't do the KJV because no one talks like that anymore. No one says thou. No one says that. No one says those words anymore. And so what you want to do is you want to, you want to take the gospel and you want to speak it to people in their heart language. And so the first time, this is, this is God's global heart. God has a global heart. Here's what it says happens here. Verse 8. And how is it that we hear each in his own native tongue? And then in verses 9 and 10 are a bunch of words that we can't pronounce and I can't pronounce. Okay? Uh, it's 14 different places where it says there's these people from all these 14 places and they can all hear the gospel in their own language. In fact, look what it says in verse 11. Both Jews and proselytes, um, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues literally the mega works of God. The first time the gospel is preached, it's preached so that every person can hear it. One thing I have not done well enough, and there's many things, but the first five years is talk enough about global missions. We love global missions here, and, and we've got to get the gospel to every person in every place. There was a guy named William Townsend, and this kind of it shows you the importance of language. And he, he went to Guatemala, I believe it was, and he was trying to reach this Indian tribe in Guatemala. And he goes village to village. He was learning the language. He goes village to village and says, have you guys heard of Jesus? And they said, he doesn't live here. I think he lives in the next town. <laughs> but he's like, okay, this is like, I, I'm meeting people who've never even heard of Jesus. So he finally learns the language and he meets the chief, the tribe. This is all a true story. He meets the, the uh, chief of this tribe. And he says, um, you need to read the Bible. You, the answers to your questions are in the Bible. Uh, how to get to heaven's in the Bible. The Bible will tell you about Jesus. The Bible will help your tribe, you know. And the guy responds, if your God is so smart, why doesn't he speak my language? And William Townsend said, because of that, he started Wycliffe Bible Translators. And he gave the rest of his life to translating the Bible so that people could understand it in their language. So in the book of Acts, the Spirit falls, and it's a reminder that we're supposed to take this message everywhere. Here's what happens next. Verse 12. They were all amazed, they were perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? So when God works mightily in your life and in your marriage and in your family and in your church, hopefully those who are watching go, what does this mean? Verse 13, uh, this is the first verse in, in uh, the book of Acts that points to persecution. But others mocking, and you tend to mock what you don't understand, uh, but others mocking said they are filled with new wine. So we'll see this next week. Uh, persecution is going to increase. It goes from verbal uh, to basically political and legal, to uh, prisons, and to uh, physical punishment. Um, but here's what it says, verse 14. But Peter, so here's the transition. But Peter, standing with the 11. So here's what's amazing. The Holy Spirit falls, but what they need is an explanation, right? So Peter's going to stand up and he's going to preach. Now, the last time we met Peter, if you're, if you're reading your New Testament, you read Peter at the end of uh, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you realize, wait a second, Peter is a failure. I mean, I, I, you can't overemphasize what Peter did. He denied Jesus Christ three times when Jesus needed him most. He was deceitful and he lied. He was supposed to be the leader of the disciples when Jesus left and he left his leadership position. I mean, he is a, it was a great and grievous sin. And you remember that. He weeps after that, if you know the story. And in John chapter 20 and 21, he has this final interaction with Jesus where Jesus restores him. And we believe in that here. We believe marriages are restored. We believe people are restored. We believe you're not defined by your past. But, you know, the big idea for today is that to move forward, you need fellowship, right? But also to move forward, we see with the story of Peter, is to move forward, you need to deal with your failures correctly. And you go, okay, I'm a sinner. I mean, you're going to fail. Embrace this. Failure is part of your future. It is. So what you want to do is fail fast and fail forward. And fail fast and fail forward. And that's repentance. <laughs> and I get back up and I brush myself off and I, and I say, I'm a sinner, but God's a great God. I'm a big sinner, but the cross is bigger than my sin and the grace of God is bigger than my sin. And so it's amazing to me that Peter, he ends up preaching a sermon on the grace of God that leads to the conversion of 3,000 people. Why did God choose Peter? Because Peter knew he was a sinner. Let me show you the sermon. So verse 14, but Peter, standing with the 11, he's always the first among equals. He's always the person to speak in the group. Here's what he says. It says, Peter lifted up his voice. Some of you say, Kyle, why do you yell at us? It's biblical. <laughs> I love you guys. It's right out of the because there's something important to say. In fact, they noticed that in this sermon about five times, Peter says, please listen to me. 
Get off your phone. Stop thinking about what you're having for lunch. Stop fantasizing. Be present and listen. What we're talking about is super important. That's what he's saying. Look here. Lifting up his voice, he addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Like, please listen. He says, verse 15, for these people are not drunk. So what was happening is they weren't, the people were not rightly interpreting what was happening around them. What preachers do, among other things, what pastors do, among other things, what every Christian should do is help people understand and interpret their life according to what God has said. So he's going to bring God's word and bring clarity to what they're experiencing. He says this, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Look at verse 16. It says this, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So he quotes the book of Joel. He says, guys, God promised this, that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on every person. He goes on, verse 17. Uh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So the spirit will be poured out equally on men and women. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. So he has a unique word to young men. And to young men, he says, listen, you need a vision. You need a vision from God for your life. If you read the entire Bible that I can find, there's only one good thing said about men. It's that they're strong. And, and, the one, and the one major command, specifically to young men, is, all right, you're strong, that's good. You need to exercise self-control. And so what we need in this church is we need, and we've got lots of young men, but we have way more, I say this all the time, we have way more young women. We have so many Wake Forest students coming, but way more women. And one of my staff asked me about that. They said, I don't get it. Why don't we have more guys? They said, a guy will follow a girl everywhere except the church. That's why they let the women in for free at the club early right? Because the guys will pay later to come. Guys won't follow a woman to church. Women, on the other hand, would love if a guy would lead them to church. And so what we're saying is we need young men who have a vision for their lives, who have a vision for what God could do with them, who have a vision. Most of them need a vision for family. They need a vision for children. They need to stop thinking instantaneously, and they need to stop thinking, start thinking generationally. They need to stop thinking about a good time, and they need to start thinking about a good life. They need to stop thinking about a girlfriend and start thinking about how she's going to be a grandma one day. You know, and if you start thinking like that, it changes everything. And they need to take, a young men need to take on themselves the, as much responsibility as they think that they could possibly handle and then try to put some more on. That's what young men need to do. Now, old men, it says, need to dream dreams. Now, this is interesting. Uh, I was talking to a guy, uh, this was a couple years ago. He was in his 80s and he was just vibrant. You know, you meet those people, you're like, you're 80 and you're not bitter. You know, you're 80 and you're still like taking young guys to lunch and buying them lunch and asking them questions and investing in them. And I said, I want to be like you. I mean, not like tomorrow because you're old, but you know, I, mean, I, <laughs> I don't want to, but when I am old, you know, if I don't die early and I live to be in my 80s, I want to be like you. And I said, well, how do you do what you do? And he told me right away. He like knew. I never asked him this question before. He said, he says, I actually know what you're asking about. And I know how to tell you. He says, most people, the older they get, the more all they do is talk about the past. Think about your grandma, think about your, gra uh, your grandma, your grandpa, think about all that. Everybody's telling stories about the past. He said, the key to staying young, the key to being vibrant is your dreams always have to be bigger than your memories. And let me just say, that's what we need for the older men. You know, we need, here's what we need from the older men in this church. Uh, we need you to have a beat up Bible and love one woman for a lifetime. We need you to retire from your job, but not retire from life and retire from the Great Commission. We need you to grow old and not grow bitter. We need you to invest in the next generation. And I'm telling you, the way that our church will go forward, I've actually seen this, churches that go forward very, very fast is when the strength of the youth is matched with the wisdom of the old. That's the whole book of Proverbs is that. We need the wisdom of the old with the strength of the youth. So he says, this is all in the book of Joel, guys. And then in verse 21, he says this. He quotes more of Joel, and then in 21, he says this. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then in verse 22, he preaches the most secret, insensitive sermon you've ever heard. He says this, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, and by the way, that's all we preach. We preach about Jesus. It's only always about Jesus. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, here it is, you crucified and killed 
by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. If you'll draw, then he, he quotes Psalm 16, he quotes Psalm 110. Verse 32, if you'll drop down there, he says this, this Jesus God raised up and we are all witnesses. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he has poured out, uh, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let all the house, this is verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. He preaches a seeker-insensitive sermon in which he says, you don't just have problems, you are the problem, Right? And he's saying that, that the, natural, the natural condition of man is to be in the path of God's wrath. And that what we did is we crucified Christ. I mean, that's, that is a seeker insensitive message, but it, it's an offensive message, but it's a message that changes us. Do you see how personal it gets? You crucified Christ. By the way, that's how you know you became a Christian. So I told you, I've grown up, I am a recovering Catholic, okay, you might call me. Or a retired Catholic, okay? But I, but I grew up Catholic, and when you go to Catholic church, there is a crucifix every, every, in every Catholic church. And the difference between a crucifix and a cross is the crucifix, Jesus is still on it. And uh, so I, I grew up, guys, I, I went to, you don't even know what this is, most of you have never been to uh, Catholic church. I went to CCD, I did all that stuff. And I had all the language. I had, uh, you know, Jesus died for sinners, I knew that. And then my buddy told me, who was a real Christian, he said, no, dude, like you, you're the sinner that Jesus died for. I'm like, oh, I never connected that. I always knew Jesus was Lord. No, no, dude, he's your Lord. I always knew people are sinful. And like, I remember, I mean, what happened to me is uh, there was an event after school. I was in high school. Uh, there's this, uh, this evangelistic event. I don't even know how this happened because I went to public high school in Pittsburgh, but somehow it happened. There's an evangelistic event after, after school. A guy preaches the gospel, says, you know, this is the gospel. Christ died for you. Repent, believe. I mean, I cry, I raise my hand, I walk an aisle, I do all three of those things. <laughs> and I remember my whole life changed. And I remember, man, I, this is it. The gospel is very real in my life. It's not about a religion, it's about a relationship. My whole life changed. Well, I want you to see how these guys responded. So here's what he says. Verse uh, 37. Now, when they had heard these, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Now, look at the, verse 37. It says, they were cut to the heart. That's conviction. My concern is in church like ours, in a city like ours, uh, you know, that we're going to raise children who are convinced but not cut to the heart, convinced but not converted, who know apologetics, know why Christianity makes sense, understand moralism, and aren't truly converted. Uh, this week, I was with a, a group of guys, and we were sharing our testimonies, sharing our stories of how we became Christians. And one of the guys, he was in his 50s, he, he said, he goes, I remember it like it was yesterday. And he starts telling the story. He says, when I was in sixth grade, my mom and my dad took uh, me and my brother to a revival that was going on in my city. He said, none of us were Christians going to this revival. He said, we walk into the revival and we could just sense the power of God. He said, and then they sang some songs. He said, they, and they, they, he said, they preached the word. He said, my whole family went forward. All of us gave our lives to Christ that night. He said, I was in sixth grade. I went home. He said, it was the first time my dad ever told me he loved me. That's what, if you want to know, what are we looking to see happen? That's what we want to see happen. We want to see people come under conviction. We want to see people go, I am a sinner. Like, I, I need to repent. I'm not a believer. I need, I'm on my way to hell. I need to, I need to be forgiven. The cross of Christ is big. So they, they ask him, if you look, they, they say, <laughs> I'll read it one more time, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter doesn't say, I got it, be a good person. Or what we'd say today, what, what Americans would say today, just be tolerant. Put up with all the goofiness. Think everything's okay. Respect all lifestyles. That's what you need to do be to be a good, recycle, reduce, reuse, ride your bike. That's what you need to do and be a good person. He doesn't say that. And Peter said to them, repent. Here, it's very simple. This is, verse 38 is what has changed families and legacies and destinies. Verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Two words here, repent and baptize. Repent, hear, hear the word repent. Repent is a word of hope, okay? Re repent means that your life doesn't need to be where it is. You don't need to stay where you are. The natural condition of man is my face is towards sin and my back is toward God. That's the natural condition of man. Repentance is I'm turning so that my back is toward sin and my face is toward God. This is, repentance doesn't mean you hate your sin. It doesn't. Lots of people hate their sin. Muslims and Buddhists and people and Americans with a sensitive conscience hate their sin. It doesn't mean you feel guilty. Everybody feels bad for things that they do. Everybody does. Repentance means I turn. I'm turning. And, and what creates a community is everybody's repenting. Everybody sees themselves as a sinner saved by God's grace. Everybody sees themselves as a sinner in need of God's grace. That's, and what we want to do here is we want to preach repentance and we want to personally practice repentance. I remember when I walked that aisle, raised my hand, cried, came to Christ, little, I was born again. I remember driving home going, there's about five things in my life that need to change immediately. I just knew it. There's things I need to stop doing and there's things I need to start doing and that's never changed. Now I've been a believer for 21 years. You know, but you had money and you had marriage and you had suffering and you had a career and you had friendships and you had family and you had in-laws. <laughs> There's always things to repent of, <laughs> you know? And so, and the second word is be baptized. Here's what baptism means. Baptism is how you go forward publicly in your faith. That's what it is. It's your for, first step forward, uh, making your faith public. It, Jesus didn't ask us. You can walk an aisle. I did. You can raise your hand. I did. You can fill out a card. I didn't, but you can't. I mean, there's different ways that people commit their lives to Christ. There's only one way Jesus says he wants to see it go in public, and it's in water baptism. Over the next two weeks, we're going to be doing baptisms. And some of you, you know it. In fact, you don't like to make eye contact with me when I talk about baptism because you just know you need to get baptized. Uh, some of you, your parents, they baptized, you, you were baptized when you were a kid. Great, that was your parents' faith. Now you need to step forward and make it your own. But here's what baptism, because many of us have been baptized. Let me tell you what baptism is a reminder of. Your faith is very personal, but also never private. It's public. And baptism is a reminder that we are to be highly relational and explicitly Christian. And so he goes, guys, this is it. If you want to know what is, the Christian, what is the Christian life about, two things. I need you to constantly be repenting all the time. Confessing sin to your wife. Confessing sin to your kids. Confessing sin to your friends getting on your knees and confessing sin to God should not be something that only occasionally happens. It's part of the repentance. And then baptism's all about, I am publicly identifying with Jesus Christ everywhere I go. What changes neighborhoods and cities and college campuses? It's people who are practicing and preaching repentance and publicly identifying with Jesus Christ. So he says all this, and then he says, look, for the promise is for you, verse 39, and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So he preaches this sermon in verses 14 through uh, 41. And so some of you may go, Kyle, to read this sermon only takes like three to five minutes. Can you preach shorter sermons? Well, I want you to look at what verse 40 says. And with many other words, he bore witness. This was at least a 45 or 50 minute sermon. No question. And he continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those, verse 41, those who receive the word, and I would add, because it's earlier in the text, were baptized, or sorry, received the Spirit as well, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then, with their time left, if you look at verse 42, Verses 42 to 47 is the fellowship that is formed when the Spirit fills and then the Word of God is preached. Here's the fellowship. Uh, we'll, we'll read the whole verse here. It says, And they devoted themselves, verse 42, this is a summary, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. A couple things I want us to notice. First of all, notice that it says, they were devoted. Now, I recently, a great guy, but there's a guy in our church, he recently met me and he said, uh, I don't think 
the whole high commitment culture thing at two cities is going to work long term. I said, well, why, why is that? He said, well, it works for young people. It works if you're single, the high commitment culture. It works if you're married, but you don't have kids. It, it works if you're an empty nester. But for most of us, the high commitment culture is just not going to work. And he said it really nicely. You know, we've got athletics, we've got academics, the kids get older, they've got lots of sports, we travel. It's just not, it's not realistic. It's like, well, I don't know how to understand the word devoted because it literally basically means I'm fully committed. <laughs> That's what it means. It says that they were devoted. It, it, devoted is I say no to good things to say yes to the best thing, right? And this is a tension. I'm feeling this. I've got a nine-year-old, I've got a seven-year-old, I've got a five-year-old. So I'm feeling, I mean, I, you know, I teach on all these things. I'm like, all right, athletics, academics, activities, amusements, they're all increasing in, in my life. Now, I was meeting with somebody recently, a great guy, and he, his kids were, were uh, they played multiple sports, but some of his kids played soccer, and he said, and they were good to soccer, and he says, what I do is whenever we soccer season starts, I always meet with the head coach, and I'm always very respectful, and I said, hey, if there's anything on Sundays, my family won't be able to be a part of it, and I hope that's not, if that's a problem, let me know, because I'm not trying to be, but for me and my family, Sundays are just a sacred, special day. Being part of church is a significant part of what it means for my family. And so I just want to let you know. And he said he's never, he's always had a good conversation. But I'm like, wow, there you go. And you could tell if you knew this guy, you know his family. You're like, oh, I can tell. I can tell that they're devoted to a few things. It's, it, what does it look like? So it, this, is, this is the language of a high commitment culture. It says they're just devoted to, four, I think it's four things. Let's look at what it says here. Um, it says this, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. Everything we do is Bible-saturated here. You come to the community groups, it's about the Bible. All we do is, if you haven't noticed, all we do is read the Word, sing the Word, pray the Word, preach the Word. Uh, baptism in the Lord's Supper is how we see the Word. That's it. Um, pray the Word. So it says, we are, it says basically they were a Bible church. They were under the Word of God, not over it or next to it. It says the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. We talked about fellowship earlier, right? Why do you need fellowship? Because life is really, really hard. Because sin and suffering are real. And you want a group that you know deeply. Fellowship, literally, it's the word koinonia, which means, it means many things. It means communion, it means sharing, it means partnering together. I said this earlier, it means one anothering, one another. Um, so it says this, uh, the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and then to the breaking of bread and the prayers. I don't know if you've noticed this, but all four of them have the definite article, the. It's really primarily, first and foremost, it's a commitment to the weekend gathering of the church. That's why it's the. There's the prayers. When do they happen? On, on Sundays when they gather. What is the breaking of bread? It's communion. What is the apostles' teaching? It was, they didn't have Bibles handed out everyone. It was the preaching and teaching of the letters of Paul and others when they would come. And, and the fellowship. This is why, we don't think this way anymore, this is why Christians have, have historically called Sunday, it's the marketplace for the soul. It's amazing to me that this is eight weeks after the resurrection and they're, they're, they're practicing communion together. How much more do we need to remember? And do we need a ritual to remember what Christ has done for us when the early church had it? And all of the formal is to serve the informal, right? You, we have communion, but we should have the breaking of bread. It says later, in their homes, they did the same thing. Uh, part of what we do, part of how you build fellowship and community is you have people in your homes and you share meals. It says the prayers, we, we want to be a church. This, is, this, this shows you that fellowship is uniquely spiritual. It's social and spiritual because what you do in fellowship is you pray with one another and you pray for one another. That's it. That should be a normal part of it. We don't have to get weird about it. Hey, what are you going through? Great, I'm going to pray for you right now. Here's what I'm going through. Will you pray with me right now? Let's pray with one another. Let's pray for one another. Um, I, I have a friend and she told me that the most significant thing her family did is that they, at every night when she was a little girl, she still talks about it, she said, every night when I was a little girl, we'd go up and we, all the bedrooms were upstairs and we, before we'd all go to bed at night, we would sit in the landing space uh, at the top of our steps and we would, we would confess our sins to one another and we would pray for one another. She's like, I don't think my dad ever did devotionals. She said, I, I, don't, I don't remember a lot of other things, but I remember our family coming together and praying for one another. So he says, this is what they did. They were committed to the breaking of bread. They were committed to the prayers. Uh, they were committed to the apostles' teaching. And then look what happens. Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Verse 45, here's the real miracle, really what happens. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. We'll talk about this more next week because it shows up in chapter four as well. 
Uh, but this is not Christian communism. That's actually an oxymoron. Um, but th- this is, we know this because it happens. This is voluntary and this is temporary. And we actually know, you'll see later, people still have their homes. Everybody doesn't sell everything and just give it to everybody. Uh, this was a unique moment where what was happening is when the, Spirit, when the Spirit comes into your life and you're under good Bible teaching, you begin to love people more than your possessions. That's what's happening here. In fact, we, we've seen this one, one, one family. We didn't, tell, we didn't ask them to do this. Well, there was one family in our church that in this last year, they, they knew about this initiative that we're going to do. They sold their house. They tithed to the initiative off the sale of their house. It's not something that we've, we've asked anyone to do or even considered. Even, I didn't even have that thought or that idea. That was something the Holy Spirit did in a person's life. They said, let's do that. Um, and so hey, I'll tell you one other story. We had a single mom in our church, and uh, this was a couple years ago. And she was a brand new single mom, and she was like, I guys, I'm super. She was with her DNA group, which is about three other women that she was meeting with. And uh, I, I heard about the story later. But uh, she said, guys, I'm super anxious. I'm a brand new single mom, and I'm working, and I'm trying to take care of my kid, and I don't have much money. And, and I'm anxious, too. And basically, the only thing that helps with my anxiety is working out, but I can't work out anymore. Because I don't, because I, it's just my schedule. I can't do it. Well, the three ladies in this DNA group didn't even tell her. They went and they bought her a treadmill. It was voluntary. It was joyful. She didn't say, "You guys make more money than me. Could you do this? You guys aren't single moms. Could you do this for me?" It was voluntary and joyfully. That's what happens here. And then let me show you how it ends. Verse forty-six and forty-seven is a great summary. This is what we want to see happen. This is the power of when the Spirit fills and the words preached and the church is formed. Here's what happens. And day by day, so it was a lifestyle for them, attending the temple. That would be this weekend gathering, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Amazing. The first church met on the weekends and then they met through the week in their homes. This is exactly what we do. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Verse forty-seven praising God and having favor with all the people. And then verse 47 just reminds us that everybody who believes is supposed to belong to a local church, right? Look what it says. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So every person who was saved, which is the Bible's way of saying to repent, believe, and become a Christian. Everybody who believes ends up belonging to a local church. Really, at the end of the day, the, the challenge from this sermon, so the, the reality of the sermon is you need fellowship to move forward. The challenge, real specifically, is would you consider making the local church, it doesn't have to be two-city church, but I believe God has designed the local church to be your first and primary community. Not your homeschool co-op. Not your Bible study from college. Not your foursome that you golf with not your old fraternity and sorority friends. But what would it look like to say the local church is going to be my first and primary community? And here's one of the ways you know that. If anybody in your home, your kids or your wife or your husband or your roommates, if anyone in your home ever has to say to you during the week, dad, mom, are we going to church this weekend? The answer, by the way, should be, is the sun ri- did the sun rise? <laughs> yes, we're going to church. But the whole point is if somebody has to ask, are we going to church this week? It's dysfunctional. That's, that would be dysfunctional in your home. Complete dysfunction. We're in church, but we're not in town. What's going, what, what, what would happen that we would not be in church and be, or be in town and be in church? It's, it's the first and it's the primary place. It's where I get the fellowship. It's where I get the teaching. It's where together we pray. It's where together we break bread. Listen, there's lots of barriers. I get it. I'll tell you the number one barrier in your life. I, I know what it is because it's for me too. The number one barrier while you're not experiencing fellowship is you have to create margin. Ministry and mission happen in the margins of our lives, right? Some of us have zero margin. Some of you work way more than you need to work, right? I, there was Years ago, there was this guy and he was a doctor and he was moonlighting. If you don't know what that means, he was working all night to make extra, extra, extra money. He already had enough money. His wife knew they had enough money. He just, I need more money. I need more money. I want to travel more. His wife's like, can you please stop? I'd like to go to church. Well, I can't because I have moonlight on Saturdays. That's the best time of moonlight. Would you stop? The problem is you have no margin. Some of you travel way too much. Some of you have way too many hobbies. Some of you, most of, most of the, the young families, it's like you have no, you're completely overwhelmed with your kids. Timmy's going to be okay if Timmy doesn't get a nap. 
And anyone over 40 is laughing because it's true. Timmy's going to be okay. Timmy's going to be okay if he's up till 9.30 one night. It's okay. Timmy's going to be okay if there needs to be a babysitter so you can go to community group. Timmy's going to be okay. It's this sick cycle. It's this dysfunctional, goofy cycle that many of you get in. I don't even have biblical language for it. It's just goofy is the right word. And you just can't get out of it. You're overwhelmed by your life. You're overwhelmed by your job. Some of you, you struggle so much with people-pleasing. You grow with your no. You grow with your no. You grow with your no. No needs to become your second favorite word. And then, and then secondly, some of us, it's just technology. We think we're more connected than we are. We have filtered and fake lives. We have tons of friends online and nobody who knows us. Some of you, it's gonna, the, the, the danger of, of and I see this all the time, especially with men, the danger of actually entering a community and actually saying the church is gonna be my first and primary community is you have to drop their persona. You have to go, I'm actually struggling, I need to be honest. And third is you just need to value it, guys. Some of you, you value your hobbies, it's obvious. You value your travel, it's obvious. You value your vacation, it's obvious. You value your sports teams, believe us, it, it's obvious. It, it, it's, it's when we begin to say, what I wanna value is community because life's hard, right? What we don't wanna have happen, this happens every once in a while, we find out someone's in the hospital, it's like, who are they? It's like, we don't know. I'm driving to the hospital, calling the staff. Can someone look them up? Who are they? Are they in a community group? No. Did they come to the weekender? No. Are they on a serving team? No. Does anybody know them? No. You don't want that. This is what happens. People get in crisis, then they reach out. And, and guess what? We're going to be there for you if you do that. But it's like, this would be a lot better if you would tie yourself into a fellowship to say, I want to do life together on mission. All of us need fellowship if we're going to move forward. Your kids need fellowship if they're going to move forward. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that because the Holy Spirit falls and fills us, we can have fellowship with you, Lord. Even right now, it's unbelievable. We get used to it because we do this all the time, but we just get to pray to you. We get to talk to the creator of the universe, and we get to call you Father. And you, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in us, Lord. And I just thank you for a community right here in this room that gathers around your word. Lord, together we're saying, let's, we want to be like the first church, Lord. Together we're saying we want to go forward. Lord, I pray that you would build a deep and rich community in our church where we would, we would actually experience what we talked about. We would experience a fellowship, a day-by-day -day fellowship. Lord, I pray for every person in here to choose the local church. It doesn't have to be two cities, Lord, but just to choose the local church to be their first and their primary community. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.